The word of the Lord says. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sit upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, and two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And the one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King and the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphims flew to me, having in his hands a burning coal that he had taken from the tongs from the fire. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sins atone for. Amen. May we be blessed by the reading of God's word. You may be seated this morning. If you've been with us, you know we're in a series called This Is Us. And what we've been talking about is who are we, uh, the people of God, here in particular at Powell's Chapel Baptist Church. Uh, we are just one expression of the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is all over. When the people of God gather, that's uh, we are the church. And, but yet God has uniquely called this church 140 years ago uh, to this place for this community. And so who are we? Uh, we want to know that through this series. And so we've looked at our mission statement. If you remember our mission statement, it's to know God and to make him known. We want to know God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And out of that will come this desire to take his message, the gospel message, to a lost and dying world. It's what Keith sang about this morning, that we want to be a change. We would have been an agent of change in this community. The only way to do that is through uh, the church. God's going to use all of God's people, the church, to change all of God's people or to call all of God's people to himself. And so that's who we are. We are to know him and to make him known. And we talked over the last four weeks about our values. These are the things that we really hold on to. Our, our mission statement, if you will, is the foundation. Uh, Christ is our foundation, first and foremost, but our mission statement is our foundation. And then we uh, talked about our values. What are the things that we value here at Powell's Chapel? And four things. And four things hinge on, the, everything else will hinge on these four things. And we talked uh, about we want it to be a God-glorifying community. That when people would come into this place or they would see us around the city, that they would see a man or a woman that glorifies God, that we really do love God, that we are God-glorifying all that we do, say and think, and all the places that God send us. And so we want to be a God-glorifying community, not just here in this church, but at Publix, at your job, and your families, everywhere that you go, that the people around you would say, man, there's something different about that person. And the difference is you glorify God. I glorify God. Collectively, we glorify God. Uh, the sad part about church so often is church isn't known uh, about being God-glorifying. They're known about bickering. They're known about arguing. They're known about fighting. They're, they're known about a lot of things. But here at Powell's Chapel, we want to be known as a God-glorifying community. Next, we want to be gospel-centered. What that means is we want all of our lives to be centered on God's word. So 
We want to glorify him, but the only way we're going to glorify him is to be a gospel-centered man, a gospel-centered woman, that everything that we do in life is dictated by God's word. It's what we taught on about two years ago, the Sermon on the Mount, that God's called you into his kingdom, and as a kingdom citizen, God requires you to live a certain way. And it's not up to you how you live, it's up to God. And God has listed for us how to live a righteous life holy life, but it comes out of being gospel-centered. We've talked about we want to be a loving, missional community, that we want to know him, we want to be centered in his will, we want to be centered in his word, and then we want to be sent out into this world. See, if all the things that you do is come here and you don't go back into the world, we got problems. We got big problems. If all that you do is you come and you sit here and you read God's word here and you worship God here, but you don't do that in the community. We got problems. If God is saying to us as the church, hey, you come to church to to get equipped to go into the world. That's what he tells us. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4. Equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's going out. That's being sent out into the world. And then we talked last week. As we go into the world, what are we going to do? Right? Isn't that what the Great Commission says? Go into the world and do what? We want to be a, a disciple-making community. That everywhere we go, we want to take the gospel message to those that are lost and disciple them how to become believers. And then as they become a believer, we teach them all that he has taught us to do. I think my greatest fear for the church, not just here at Powell's Chapel, but the American church in particular, is we've quit making disciples. We've made a lot of converts, but we've made very few disciples. God didn't call us to make converts. God called us to go and make disciples. We're going to talk a little bit about it this morning, the reason for that. But I think the other reason, one day I'll get to that, is we don't want to take the time to make disciples. You see, when we go into the world and we begin to witness to the world and make disciples, it's going to cost you a lot. There's a lot of sacrifices that come with discipleship, a lot. And you're, you're going to get real messy because unbelievers are really, really messy people. That they're sloppy people. And I don't mean they're a tire. I mean they have wicked hearts. And they do wicked things. But what we're going to look at this morning is that you and I were once that person. And somehow, some way, the call of God entered your life. You responded to the call of God the way that Isaiah did. And somebody discipled you. Somebody spent a lot of time with you. And so this morning, we're going to look at that. But it's going to come out of what we call and what our desire is. Those are our values, to be a God-glorifying community, a gospel-centered community, be a loving, missional community, to make disciples. But here's what it means. This is what we desire here at Powell's Chapel, that this is what every disciple will look like. Just five things. That if you're here this morning and you love God this morning, my hope for you, these outcomes are true about you. So meaning that as you 
put a sponge into the water and it draws in whatever color that water is. You squeeze the sponge, it comes out of you. If you put a sponge into lemon juice, you're going to squeeze out lemon juice. You're not going to squeeze out grape juice. And so God is saying to us here at Pastor Chapel, this is what it looks like to be a disciple. You want to know the five marks of what it means to be a disciple. Here's five marks that we're going to make sure that we do all the time here at Powell's Chapel. The five things are that you would have an intimate walk with Jesus. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. That you would have intimacy with God. That every disciple here at Powell's Chapel would have an intimate relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And then the, the other thing that we would want is that every disciple would live the fruit of the Spirit. Brother Frank's going to come and teach on that next week. That you would live out love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control, everywhere that you go. That that's just an outcome of your life because you know him and you desire to know him. The third thing is this. That out of that, you would know your grace story or your testimony. That you would be able to sit down across from someone and walk them through what God has done for you in your life. Not what God did for you 20, 30, 40 years ago. That's part of your grace story. But as you intimately walk with the Lord, you will be full of grace stories. That every one of us, if you're walking with the Lord this morning, that you would be able to get up here and I would be able to hand the mic over to you and say to you, Keith, what is God teaching you? And you would be able to articulate that. This is what God's doing in my life. So you would have a story that doesn't hinge on a decision you made 40, 50, 20, 10, 5, one year ago. But every day of your life is filled with the grace that God continues to pour out. And you would be able to tell someone the stories of God in your life. The fourth thing is this. Is that God has designed all of us with spiritual gifts. All of us in the room have unique gifts that God has placed in you and on you to be used by him to further his kingdom. And so I'd ask this, and we're going to get there. Do you know your gifts? Do you know how God's uniquely wired you to be used by him to reach the world? You see, one of my unique gifts is to be able to teach. If you told me to be the numbers guy here, we would be bankrupt tomorrow afternoon. I don't know numbers. I can barely count the 10. But I do know the way God has wired me. I know my spiritual gifts. And in that, I'm going to use those gifts to expand God's kingdom. Do you know yours? And all of us have them. If you're a believer this morning, God has uniquely gifted you to be used by him to further his kingdom. And so that means this. This is not the most important gift in the building. Do you hear that? The preaching of God's word is not the most important thing. It's just one of them. It's just one of them. If you have the gift of hospitality, that gift of hospitality is just as important as the teaching gift. Because if you, if you ever get to really, I, I don't really have the gift of hospitality. I'm an extreme introvert. Like, you might think, man, he's an extrovert. He gets up there and talks. Man, when I'm in my house, I, I'm terrified of people. Now, I know it might not seem that way here, 
but I don't have the gift of hospitality. Thank God for Jenny. She is able to compliment me on that gift of hospitality. Therefore, if we had two unhospitable people, it would be a disaster. And so all of us in the room, God is uniquely gifted. Do you know that gift? We'll talk about that in several weeks. And the last one is this. It's a culmination of the other four. It's called stewardship of life. When we steward our lives in such a way that we're constantly giving back to God and constantly giving back to God's kingdom. Are we good stewards of what God has given to us? That's not just our money. That's not just our resources. That's our time. That's our gifts. That's everything. Do we steward our lives in such a way that we're open-handed and we say, God, use me wherever. It's what Isaiah does in this passage. You see, all of life will hinge on these things in some way, shape, or form. And so this morning, we'll begin this series, mini-series within the greater series, our outcomes. And so this morning is this idea about an intimate walk with God, intimacy with God. Do we have that? Do we have that individually? And then do we have that as the church corporately? Turn with me to Philippians before we get to Isaiah. I think it's important that we understand what it really means to be intimate with the Lord. It starts in verse, chapter 3, verse 7. Here's what Paul has to say about intimacy with God. He said, but whatever gain I have, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Underline the word knowing in that passage. For his sake, I suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. Verse 10, that I may know, underline that in your Bible, that I may know him, Christ, in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, may, may I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Those two words in that passage, the word know is important. That's, that means intimacy. And I would ask us this question, do we know God or do we know about God? You see, I think a lot of believers know about God. But do they really know God? You see, that word know in the, in the passage, that word know throughout the Bible is this intimate word. It means intimacy, that you really know someone. And so it's what Adam and Eve did when it said that Adam came and he knew Eve. That's a sexual relationship. That's sexual intimacy. And God is using that through Paul is that do we know God the same way? You see, in Middle Eastern cultures, one of the reasons that the, the ladies wear uh, the, the full veils is so that no one else will see their face, that no one else will really know them. And in Middle Eastern culture, it, it's 
forbidden that if I go into the Middle Eastern culture and I begin to, to speak about a woman and I say, yeah, yeah, I know her. That does not go over well in Middle Eastern culture. Because to know someone meant I have literally slept with them. And I wonder for us and our walk with the Lord, do we really know God intimately? Like, do we, would we say this morning, man, I know God. Like, I really know him. I don't know just about him, but I know him. See, the only way to know God is to spend time with God. You see, you and I could get on Facebook and we could know a lot about a lot of people. You could pull up Facebook if you have Facebook and you could just write in uh, John Smith's name and John Smith, he's going to have a lot of pictures about what he's doing in life. He, you could probably tell me what he did yesterday and tell me that he hung out with his friends and probably said he went into uh, the UT game. Unfortunately, that was a waste of his time. Sorry, Rob. But we could know a lot about a lot of people but not know them at all. And my great fear for us here at Powell's Chapel is this, that we know a lot about God. That we've come to church week in and week out, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and we know about God. If I asked you some facts about God, you'd be able to rattle those things off. But that's not the desire God has for any one of us. You see, God's not concerned with this word. This word is called our, our, just primarily our doxology. Like our doxology says what we know about God and how we, what we know to be true about God. But what he cares about is that our doxology, our orthodox, and our orthopraxy, that means how we live out what we say we believe, would be consistent with one another. So if we really know God, then we're going to live our lives according to what we know to be true about God. But the world around us says, you know a lot about God, but your life doesn't show that you know God at all. So do we have intimacy with God? Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 6. I believe three things that we must all see and we must all be like the prophet come out of this text. The first one is this. It's what happened to Isaiah. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, the background to this story, the first five uh, chapters of Isaiah are all about how Israel was following the Lord and how King Uzziah was following the Lord. And then one moment in time, Isaiah said to himself, I don't need God anymore. What I once needed from God, I no longer need because I've achieved everything. And then chapters 1 through 5 talk about what God is going to do to God's people. As I was studying this passage, I thought to myself, how often do I get to that place of really being needy for God, and then he meets my need, and then once he meets my need, I no longer need him. You see, that's what happened with Isaiah. 
That's what happened with the people of God. That's what happened with King Uzziah. They were in this great need for God, and they finally got their need met. And once their need was met, they didn't need God anymore. And then they began to compare themselves with one another. We'll see that in this passage. So that's the backdrop. That their intimacy with God waned because of their lack of their need for God. So, so the king Uzziah died. I saw the Lord seated upon the throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Verse 5. And then the foundations of the thresholds, the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. The first thing that it requires all of us to have when it comes to intimacy with God. Just like the prophet sees God, we must see God for who he really is. Do we know who God really is? That there is God sitting in the throne room this very moment. And what's going on in heaven this very moment is all the angels and all the seraphim are shouting, Holy, holy, holy to the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. You see that word holy, holy, holy. It's not meant to be repetitive. It's meant to build upon one another. That this holiness of God. It's not holy plus holy plus holy plus holy. It's holy times holy times holy times holy. Like the holiness of God. That God is sovereign and supreme over all things and all worship is due him. You see, it's what happened to Moses back in Exodus. Right? Moses is going to God and says to God, you're telling me to do all this, God, but who are you? Who am I say to sin? Who's sending me? And God says, I am is sending you. So all of a sudden, who God is becomes very intimate with Moses. He gives Moses a name, a name of intimacy. I am. Like what a name that is. Like think about that. Two words, I am, means I'm everything. I am, you fill in the blank, is what God is saying to Moses. It's all mine. And I'm in all of it, and it all comes through me. It's all mine. And then, as you know, he, Moses is used by God to deliver God's people. And they go into the wilderness, and they begin to live crazy lives. And in the craziness, Moses and God are having these conversations. And we talked about it a few weeks ago. God invites Moses up on, on the mountain to see him and there's that phrase in there there's that verse in there to see him face to face that's intimacy that moses is in this mountain cleft and he desires to see god and god says you'll see me you'll see me and yet then in a moment god says to moses but you can't see all of me You can't see all of me, Moses, because as you saw all of me, you saw all of my holiness and all of my glory and all that I am, it would obliterate you. Like when you take sin and put it in holiness, holiness always shatters 
sin completely. And so he says to Moses, hey, I'll let you see part of me, but I got to protect you because you're a sinful person. You can't see all of me. And that's what's happening here in this passage with Isaiah. That Isaiah is now in the throne room of God and he sees all the holiness of God. And I wonder for us, church, I wonder for us, individuals, when's the last time that we saw God? Not read about God in some book. Not heard about God in some preaching. But when's the last time that you or I opened God's word and saw God? I think about all the stories that we hear here at Pouse Chapel. All the miracles that we have heard about. From Lynn a few years ago to Miss Patty to even Ronald. You see, all those are God's small ways of letting us see Him. You see, those are all miracles. And miracles only happen by God. And so God is saying to us, I'll let you see some of me, but I just can't let you see all of me. And here's one of the ways I'm going to let you see me. It's what, it's what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Let heaven come to earth. See, in heaven, it's all perfect. It's all good. It's all righteous. It's all holy. And so we're crying out in the Lord's Prayer, God, as it is in heaven, let it be here on earth. And one of the ways that God does that is through miracles. And yet, church, I wonder, do we bypass the miracle and give explanation to the miracle? Oh, well, the doctors did this. The this did this, or the this did this. But everything that happens, if we believe that God's sovereign and in control, he allows to happen, which means he did it, not the doctors. Yes, he used the doctors. Yes, he gave the doctors the brains to figure it out. But it's not their knowledge that did any for your cancer. I promise that. It's because of the will of God in your life and allowing us to see him. If you have children, they're miracles from God. Like God is the one that orchestrates life. God is the one that gives life. And so in a few moments when some of these children come back up for the Lord's Supper, allow us to see them. Man, that is God's activity. We get to see God all day long. And yet I wonder how often we miss it. That we miss seeing God. You see, because if we miss it, we won't do what the prophet does next. You see, he's in the throne room of God and he's seeing the holiness of God and he's beginning to see something. And all of a sudden, here in verse 5, what happens to Isaiah it says in verse 5 woe is me you see when we really begin to see God the truth is you'll really begin to see yourself 
you see, when you really see God and you really will see him for all of his glory, then those moments that you say or I say, say, man, I, look at all that I've done. I'm not that bad. And that won't hurt too many people. Like, look at everyone else. There's so many more people doing so much worse than what I'm doing. You see, when we see God for who he is, then we'll stop looking at the world and comparing the world to ourselves. I promise this. There's always going to be someone else worse off than you that you can point to and say, yep, I'm better than. Always. Like, I'm a sinner, but man, I don't sin like that. You see, but that's not what happened to Isaiah in this passage. When he saw God, he saw himself. And what does he say about himself? Woe is me. See, it's exactly what happened as Larry was reading. He saw himself in the passage. He's overwhelmed with emotions for seeing himself. And when we read this passage and we see Isaiah and he says, woe is me. He says to himself, man, I am not like that. And therefore, I'm in big trouble. He says, woe is me. And what does he say about himself? I'm lost. Here's the prophet. This isn't just some guy off the street. This is a prophet of God. Called by God to take a message of God to a lost world. And what does he say about himself? Man, because of you, and when I compare myself to you, God, woe is me. I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of people with unclean lips. You see, when we see God, we'll see ourselves for who we are, but we'll also see the world for who it really is. It's what Keith said in the song. It's so beautiful, so true. This world needs change, does it not? And I promise this, what the world needs is not another building called a church it doesn't need that we have so many churches in america and yet america is falling to pieces the church is not the problem what's the problem it's you it's me the church that's the problem because we don't see god for who god really is therefore we won't see ourselves for who we really are sinners apart from god that's what paul said in philippians i really want to know god but if i really want to know him what paul says then i got to become like him and i got to endure his suffering wait a second i don't want to do that part I'd like to see God, but I really don't want God to mess up this good thing I got going. If we're honest with ourselves this morning. And yet when we see God, we recognize who God is. We recognize we're apart from a holy God. And God has certain standards on our life that we must submit to. And what does he do? He submits. He surrenders. He says, woe is me. 
For my eyes have seen the King. My eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. In that moment, he confesses who he, he is. He's apart from God. He's a sinner apart from God. And yet in his surrender and his submission, he recognizes God's, the God and the Lord of lords. And then it says one of the seraphims flew, having in his hand a burning coal. And having taken it with tongs from the altar, he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sins are atoned for. You see, when we come to recognize who we are and seeing God and we make confession to God, then God does what only God can do, and that's to remove your sin from you. That's to atone you of your sin. But it comes out of not you looking at yourself and saying, man, I, I'm not all together, uh, and I need to fix this. It's going to God and saying, I don't have it all together. Woe is me. I need your help, God. You see, that's what it means to have intimacy with God, that you know God so much that by knowing him and seeking him, that when you sin and are apart from God, he brings conviction on your life. And through conviction, there's confession. And through confession, there's repentance. And through repentance, there's forgiveness. But it comes out of knowing God and knowing yourself. Intimacy. See, I know it myself a lot better today because I'm married to Jenny. I was a bubbling, stumbling fool before I met Jenny. I was saved. I was walking with the Lord. But man, what she has done in my life because of my intimate moments with her is she's pointing out some things in my life that no one else could ever point out to me. And yet God is 10 times that. Do we know God? What do we know about him? Because then the last thing will be true. When we really know God, we confess and we're atoned for. Then we'll see the world for what the world really is. A lost place that needs God and needs atonement for their sin. Then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then Isaiah responds, here I am, send me. You see, he only responded by being sent from God after he understood who God was, who he was, and he had repented and God had forgiven him. Then he had that same conviction to go and take that message that he had just witnessed in the throne room to take it to the people that he had just said to just a few verses before, I live amongst the people of unclean lips. And so, God, if you could do this for me in this moment, then you could use me, God, to do this in the world. We could bring change to the world one person at a time through one conviction at a time to say, this is who God is. This is who I am. I'm in need of God. And therefore, if I need God, everyone else around me needs God. God, send me to the world that needs you. You see, I said this last week. I'll say it again. There's this great book called Let the Nations Be Glad. It's an amazing book about missions. 
It's about how all over the world there needs to be more missionaries all over the world. But the writer, where does he start the whole book? You'd think he'd start with numbers. You'd think he'd start with places. You'd think he'd start with a lot. But he starts with this one sentence. It's broken my heart every time I read it, every time I think about it. He starts with this one sentence. Missions exist because worship does not. Think about that. If the church was more concerned about worship, and I don't mean singing in songs. That's not worship. That is one piece of worship. Offering is worship. Fellowship is worship. Teaching is worship. Coming together is worship. All of our lives ought to be worship. And what are we worshiping to? The word worship means to give worth to something. What do we give our worth to? Do we give our worth to God or everything else? And so what the writer saying, give your worth to God. And if you gave your worth to God, then there'd be no need for missions because you'd go out and do it regardless. And so missions happens because worship doesn't happen. And if we became worshipers of God, then we'd always go and we'd always be missionaries. So the question is, church, if someone were to squeeze you today or squeeze me, would it reveal our intimate walk with the Lord? Have you seen God this morning? We're going to take the Lord's Supper as a reminder of what God did for us, a a reminder that he atoned our sins. If you have a child, I invite you to go grab your child and have them be a part of the Lord's Supper. This is one one of the things that God has given to us. Two things God has given to us as sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism. So if you have a child, please go grab them. If you're uncomfortable with that, keep them back there. Uh, But go grab your child to be a part of the Lord's Supper, as a reminder to us and, and an example to our children that this is what God did for us. That God broke his body and God poured out his blood through his son Jesus to atone our sins. See, my prayer has been this week, as we take the Lord's Supper, that this would be a reminder of your intimacy with the Lord. Turn back with me to Philippians chapter 3. Paul says this. I'll read it to us again. But whatever I gained, I had, I count as loss. So all this that I've achieved, Paul's saying, all that I've gathered, I count it as lost. I count it as meaningless. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. As I read that verse, I think to myself, God, you took my kids from me. Took Jenny from me. Can I say that? All the things I hold dear, God were to strip those from me. Can I really say I counted those as lost anyway in the surpassing knowledge of knowing you? You're my greatest gift, God. I 
suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, count them as garbage in order that I may gain Christ. What are we willing to lose this morning to gain Christ? being found in him and having a righteousness of thy own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith do I have that righteousness we have that righteousness that I may know him that I may have intimate moments with him and the power is the resurrection if you are a believer here this morning you have had that power in you called the Holy Spirit that raises death to life. I may share in his sufferings. Are we willing to say that this morning? To become like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Can we say that this morning? As we take the Lord's Supper this morning allow us to be reminded that the Lord Jesus Christ did this himself. He gave up everything. He gave up the throne room of heaven to be here. And then he walked a sinless life for you and for me because we could not do that. We needed someone to pardon our sins and that's what the death of Christ did for us. And he gave it all up and then he even obeyed his father to death and death on the cross. That his body was broken pray this is a reminder for all of us that are believers if you do not know Christ this table is not for you God's word says do not take this in an unholy way if you're an unbeliever do not take this this morning this is for the believer in the room as a reminder of what Christ did for us as we prepare the Lord's uh, table as the Lord's supper I pray that you would prepare your own heart